Today's episode is brought to you by The Star Draft. Do you feel like you always know the Oscar nominees before they're announced, or wish that you could share just a bit of Meryl Streep's Oscar glory? Well, now you can. Experience awards season like never before. Sign up today to create or join a league at www.thestardraft.com. We share the, the same love, the, the love of film. And now what I'm about to say probably will stir up a lot of conversation around over the country. You commie, homo-loving sons of guns. It's not about you. It's about these characters. They are two of the finest gay Americans, two wonderful men. And I am greatly honored and tremendously moved. Don't let anybody tell you this isn't a terrific thrill. It would be a lie if I told you I didn't know what to say because I've been working on this speech for about 25 years. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you. And welcome back to the season finale. Season, what, six, five, six? I don't even know at this point. Of Academy Queens, the men of 2010. Is this our time? Is it? I'm Joey Gentili. And dating me is like dating a Stairmaster. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And this is Academy Queens, your LGBT guy through the Academy Awards per decade per category. And again, the season five or six finale. Brandon, which one is it even? I don't I know. I think it's six. Is it six? I, I think you're right. Season six, the men of 2010. Holy shit. Wow. All right. Here we are. Right. I, I got to say, it's also a little bittersweet because we are not going to be doing this for at least a half a year until we figure out the quote unquote future, like we've already said with everyone of Academy Queens. Um, you know, we were very honest with everyone when we first started. If there was ever a point where we needed to like break or stop, or if one of us wants to stop, that we're done. So this is going to be interesting. Take it in. Right. So um, people who are not with us on Twitter are probably hearing this for the first time because I don't think we addressed it on a previous episode. But um, yeah, we're taking a little hiatus. We both have a lot of things going on in our professional and personal lives. And um, we want to dedicate as much as we can to those um, possibilities, th those opportunities that are going on. And so we're uh, going to take a little, a little break from this thing, but um, hopefully get back to it at some point in the future. Um, so just stay tuned, I suppose. Yes. Now, um, that doesn't mean we're not going to still be on Patreon because, you know, we have really great subscribers with that. You guys do bring your hard-earned money into that. So, you know, we will still be doing the two episodes per month, one where the patrons can vote on um, what you guys want to hear and then a surprise choice from us. So we're not totally going away. We're just really dialing it back on the main show for now. Uh, but if you're not on Twitter with us, join us on there. And then, you know, I'm sure we'll do a little update when we get to that point. Um, you know, we are also open, though, that we've said once, you know, this Oscar season comes to uh, to an end, we will be uh, doing that regular episode. So you are going to hear from us really randomly. And uh, as of last week, we booked a really cool guest for that one. So pretty excited. Yeah, looking forward to talking to that person. I was uh, pretty surprised when you said that they had agreed. Yeah, yeah, it was it was actually I was really excited. Um 
you know, at the time when we booked Michael Musto, we were like, oh, we have our biggest guest yet. And now it's like, oh, we just topped that. Um, so that that's pretty cool. But I honestly can't wait for that episode, mainly because I'm so over this season already. <laughs> yeah, it's been um, it's, awesome. it's been a rough a rough year. Yeah, plus a yeah. couple months because the Oscars decided to push their qualification window and all that craziness. So it's even longer than it would have already been. Right, right. Um, well, this speaking of long, this episode is going to be a long one. Obviously, it's the end of the season, so what we do too is we rank our supporting and leads. You know, obviously we have the questions, but um, we're also going to reveal Kevin Jacobson's um Glenn Close on a Q challenge result um did speak to her people and uh we have an answer and uh you'll have to wait till the end of the episode everyone to uh hear what's going on with Glenn Close coming on to Academy Queen so that's fun right so um yeah Brandon who do you think I'm going to pick this year to round out the uh 2010s um, in lead, I have a feeling about Javier Bardem, and in supporting, I'm going to go with John Hawks. All right. Um, lead, I honestly don't know. I know I can get rid of two automatically. Um, it is a toss-up between what I think would be Eisenberg and Bardem for you. So I'm actually going to say you're also going to go Bardem. With supporting, I could see you going for Daddy Ruffalo. I could. But I know I've been down that Ruffalo road with you before. So you know what? I'm going to go with your opening. I'm going to say you're going Bardem and Jeremy Renner. All right. All right. Take us away. So your nominees for Best Actor in a Supporting Role in 2010 were... Christian Bale, The Fighter. John Hawks, Winter's Bone. Jeremy Renner, The Town. Mark Ruffalo, The Kids Are All Right. Jeffrey Rush, The King's Speech. Let's start with our winner for the year, Christian Bale, winning for The Fighter. This is his first of four nominations going into this. He was a bit of a frontrunner as he takes the Golden Globe, SAG, Critics' Choice, and the National Board of Review. And he's also nominated with BAFTA and the National Society of Film Critics, and he's part of the SAG Ensemble nomination. In The Fighter, Christian Bale plays Dickie, a formerly famous boxer, who has succumbed to substance abuse as his younger brother's boxing career has taken off. So how do you feel about Christian Bale and the fighter? I just want to start off with a big LOL because every time I think of this movie, I just, in this performance, I always just think of that scene where Melissa Leo, who plays his mom, shows up at the crack den and he's got to escape her. But instead of, I don't know, trying to, 
go out the back door. He literally just jumps out of the second story window into like a pile of garbage. And Melissa Leo just watches him like it's like just a Tuesday. <laughs> She's like, again, really? Um, I just think that's one of the funniest moments in this movie with this character, even though it's such a heavy, um, heavy theme that's happening with this character. I think Bale is really good here. I I think this is obviously his best nomination. Um, and I'm not mad at this win. Um, I think there is so much happening with his character. Um, my only... I wouldn't even say a complaint. I guess my only criticism is that I just feel like this character is constantly on a 10, even when he's supposed to start feeling bad or he, he, he gets, you know, upset or whatever. He always just seems to be on this 10 crack mode. And I, I know everyone deals with addiction differently for sure. Um, I have witnessed someone close to me recover from crack addiction and when she had done it, it was not like that. So it was one of those things where I've seen it and then I see it portrayed and I'm like, okay, maybe that's a different way to take it. Um, but he just definitely always felt like he was on 10 and it feels very, it, it never feels like he fully develops this character or this addiction. But again, I mean that, you know, addiction hits people differently. Um, I'm just trying to view it as what else do you have for this character, I guess, is what I'm saying. So I, I don't hate the win. I think this is really good. I think this is Bale's best nomination. Um, but, yeah, it just feels like it's always just one mode with him. How about you? I feel very similar um, to you. Uh, so it's kind of funny how uh, I believe a few episodes ago you had said that when you walked out of uh, – was it Dallas Buyers Club? You knew Jared Leto was going to win. Was that the yeah. one? So yeah. when I walked out of the fighter, I knew Christian Bale was going to win. Um, it was just one of those performances. I just saw it happening for him. Uh, you know, it's this sort of prestige indie drama, uh, David O. Russell, this stacked cast. And it is a very showy performance uh, based on a real person. Um, so like you said, everyone... Um, Everyone struggling with addiction, like mental illness, goes through it differently. Um, the the substance um, that they're addicted to has a different effect on them than it, than it might have on another person. Likewise, with recovery, people go through all that differently. I think the actual Dickie was involved in this movie. Like I think he and Christian Bale actually spoke and worked together a bit, if I'm not mistaken. So I would imagine there was um, a lot of a lot of personal details that Christian Bale brought to this particular performance. Um, but he is generally, he does feel like he's at a 10 a lot of the time. Um, it's a character who never really lets you forget that they're around, which is sort of his struggle in an ironic way, because his brother is on this rise to stardom, uh, the Mark Wahlberg character. And um, part of Dickie's um issue i feel is him trying to stay relevant um like with this i think it's an hbo documentary that's following them around um documenting dickie's fall juxtaposed with his brother's rise and all that and um all that really ends up doing is causing dickie to spiral even harder like he's showing off for the cameras doing his like jabs 
in the air. And then he just goes even further down the rabbit hole, which just allows Christian Bale to chew even more um, dialogue and script pages. Um, so it's a very showy performance that I don't actually mind. Like you said, I don't really mind this win, um, even though it is a lot, uh, sort of in all caps, a lot. It kind of works. And I don't think Christian Bale's ever stealing the scene per se. Like, I don't feel like he's ever um, taking the spotlight away. His uh, big personality and presence feels like it's feeding the, the general storyline. Um, so it's big with purpose. Um, so I, I actually kind of, kind of dig this one. Okay, so I'm glad that you also felt that same way, though, with also being on a 10. I was like, maybe this doesn't make sense. Maybe I'm viewing this so specifically, but I'm glad that you see it, too. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying with the, um, with him jumping out that window, I mean, this performance doesn't just give Bale a lot to do on a psychological level. This is a very physical performance, too, for him. Um, like he has that big stunt um, where he's, you know, leaping out of the second story, third story window to escape his mother. Um, but he's always like running around uh, trying to, again, make himself look important or to feel important. Um, you know, he used to be one of the biggest uh, boxers in his league or however you put it. And um, unfortunately, that's not the case anymore. So he has a lot to do on some some physical levels and also on some mental ones too bale as a performer i mean yeah but bale's always been a physical actor like you look at him in the dark night um you know doing all sorts of literal action scenes but even in like his more dramatic roles his, he always kind of plays with his body in a way that sometimes makes me uncomfortable um like in The Machinist, for instance, where he got down to like 105 pounds or something. Yeah. And I mean, on the one hand, that's dedication to his craft. And on the other hand, it's quite dangerous. And I, I feel weird even praising it because it seems uh, unsafe and a bit unhealthy. But Christian Bale's always been one to really give literally his entire being to a performance. So I think that this is one um, here in The Fighter where I think that's very evident. Yeah, and it's funny that The, the Machine is because there's that photo that haunts the internet every couple mm -hmm. of months, I feel, where it's like his silhouette where he's like half sideways and like shadowed. And it's very unnerving for sure. It's also like I get here's, – here's something. So as someone who has spent almost a year now completely changing his body, like I hired personal trainers and all this stuff, and I've done really well for myself, um, you know, and it takes time. It I know it's a different playing field when you have like nutritionists and sh personal chefs and studio trainers, but it fascinates me how fast he can change his body because it is a long process and i'm just like wow like it's it's fascinating and creepy and just kudos kudos all around yeah because he went from like super muscular and beefy in the dark night to what we see here in the fighter in like a year yeah and i and like i'm just 
now getting the muscle definition in where you can see it in certain places. And I'm just like, I don't understand how he did it like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of uncomfortable in a way. Like, I feel weird even, like, praising it. Like, it's a, it's a feat. It is definitely an accomplishment. But, yeah. I don't know, it has to come at a cost, I feel. Yeah. So next we have John Hawks, uh, nominated for Winter's Bone. This is so far his uh, only Oscar nomination. He wins at the Spirit Awards, and he's nominated at SAG. In Winter's Bone, John Hawks plays Teardrop. Uh, the meth-addicted uncle to Jennifer Lawrence's re. So how do you feel about um, John in Winter's Bone? I really like this performance. Um, this is one of those performances that I remember this Oscar year very vividly. This was the year that I had um, worked at Blockbuster. And I, and I love Winter's Bone. I think it's a great movie. Um, and Hawks is a big reason for that. I remember just kind of getting to know the the Oscar process and the precursor process around this time. And even knowing then that if someone was going to upset, it really might have well as been, or let me try that English again. It really might have been John Hawks because this kind of seemed to be the quote unquote out of nowhere nomination. Um, because and there's a question about it. Andrew Garfield was a quote unquote lock, like how let's say film Twitter likes to say like someone's a lock if they hit every, you know, pre major precursor and Hawks came to essentially take that spot. Um, and you know, a big thing for that is Martin Scorsese. I mean, Winter's Bone was a huge heavy hitter that year with, best picture and actress and screenplay and supporting actor. So, I mean, he had the quote unquote paper narrative to a win and be um, upset. I mean, I do believe that if there was a tally, he was in second place here. Um, but regarding the performance, it's talk about unnerving. I mean, teardrop is fucking fascinating and scary and he does have this villainous thing to him but really has this like solid heart of gold um you know when you meet him and his girlfriend cinnamon in the first scene where he like pretty much like choke slams re up against the the refrigerator you're like fuck this dude like he's not good and then like you realize he is the one that people fear in the town of where they're at in Arkansas um, or Missouri, I'm sorry. And uh, it is fascinating the amount of strength that he's pulling through in the most nuanced ways. I mean, just the whole pickup truck being pulled over by the cop and he's got the shotgun in his hand. And is this our time? Like, I, I mean, even the cop isn't fucking with him. So it's fascinating that this, almost feels like a forgotten nomination and we're only 11 years removed at this point because he's doing so much and it is really damn good, especially in this decade of pretty um, uh, underwhelming men in every year, in every category. Um, I think we're in agreement on that, that this is not a stellar year for the men or stellar decade. Um, maybe, I don't know. 
But uh, yeah, it's it seems weird that this is forgotten already. Yeah, I really like John Hawks in Winter's Bone. Um, he has a very ominous presence. Like he doesn't even have to really do anything to completely convey this energy of danger. Like there is a very threatening vibe to this guy um, that I feel uh, it's communicated like through the camera and through the screen. And um, just one look at him and you have this entire backstory or at least this entire um, snapshot of who this guy is and um, the influence he has in this community and how he functions um, within this sort of family unit, this like sort of really strange uh, literal family, like bloodline, and also this sort of adjacent, not necessarily chosen family, but um, this sort of crew of people. And, um, yeah, there's a quiet menace to this guy um, that I really dig. Um, John Hawks is one of those actors who I feel had a really great first half of the decade and then for some reason kind of got forgotten or the roles just weren't there. Um, Because there for a minute he seemed like the next, like, indie prestige actor. And he's had a few... um, memorable roles uh since winter's bone but um i feel like we don't talk about him in quite the same way that we did like five or six years ago and um that's too bad because i think he's someone with a whole lot of talent um this is a kind of it's an understated performance here in winter's bone until it's not anymore and i think john hawks balances that really well and um like, I was positive when this movie came out that he was going to be, like, a big thing. Like, he was going to play these juicy supporting parts in all sorts of directors' movies. Um, not that he could not do lead, because we've seen that he can, but he just seemed like that sort of Steve Buscemi-type guy who who appears in all of these movies in these sort of character-actor-type roles, whether it's comedically or in a more evil sense. Um, he just seemed like the next generation of that type of actor. And um, perhaps it is sort of happening on a more low-key level right now, and maybe it'll um, continue um, when things get going again. But um, I think this is a really nice, um, a really good nomination for John Hawks. Yeah, I, it definitely feels like after the sessions, he was just like, fuck Hollywood, <laughs> because I just give John Hawk something to do. We see that he can lead films and he's really good at it. We can see that he can support films. He's really good at it. More John Hawks, please. Yeah. I, I'd really like to see him come back uh, with another, with another big, uh, important role. I would also like to shout out that he almost got a second nomination the following year for Martha, Marcy, May Marlene. Mm-hmm. Cause have you seen that? Yeah. I, yeah, I believe we talked about that. I remember I was that was the first film I had seen at a premiere slash press screening in L.A. And with and there were Academy members there because it was right around the time they did this like hybrid like screen. I'm sorry, screening. And um, he 
leaving it, there were a lot of people like, oh, Elizabeth Olsen, Oscar nomination, John Hawks, consecutive Oscar nomination. And then nothing really panned out for that one. And that was upsetting because he really could have had three consecutive nominations with that, this, and then the sessions all in a row. Boo. Yeah, I would have welcomed a nomination for Marcy May Marlene. That's another one where he has a very sinister presence to him, but in a completely different way. Like, I wonder if for some people they saw the the roles as too similar or something, but they are two fundamentally different, uh, different types of bad. You know what I mean? Um, and then, you know, The Sessions is a, is a total 180 from both of those. And I think he's quite good in that film, too. So, yeah, he could have had a, a three-peat, and I would have been okay with it. Yep. And I always just think of that song that it, he, like, that way down in Missouri. You know, that I was just totally off-key there. But you know that song he sings in this? Yeah. I just It always just randomly pops in my head. Yeah. That's More all. work for John Hawks, please. Please. So uh, next we have Jeremy Renner nominated for The Town. This is his second of two uh, nominations, uh, having been nominated the previous year for The Hurt Locker. Going into this, he uh, is part of the National Board of Review Ensemble win, and he shows up as um, an individual performer with the Globe, SAG, Critics' Choice, and National Society of Film Critics. In The Town, Jeremy Renner plays James the volatile partner um, in literal crime to Ben Affleck's Doug. So how do you feel about Jeremy Renner in The Town? I hate that everyone forgets how good The Town is until they revisit it. Like, it is genuinely a great movie. We don't get these types of heist movies anymore. I mean... As a film, I would like to say I would put it in the line of something like Dog Day Afternoon in a great heist movie. And I would like this genre to come back, please, because I I'm, I, I, I would like to see it again. Um, I think the town, he's really good here and like really damn good. And like it's weird that Jeremy Renner has like this hate thing for him on the interwebs um i don't get it um you know he's really good as hawkeye he doesn't get credit for hawkeye hopefully he starts getting credit for hawkeye um and as an actor like he's genuinely really good i do think like since this his i don't know if it's like he needs a new agent or it's his choices because i you know, he is busy with Marvel, but he's not getting scripts that I think are really up to par like this one. Like, there is a really good comedy that he's really good in called Tag that came out a couple years ago. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's really creative and really funny. Um, but, like, something that gives him juicy meat to just chew on and really just become a full 100% cold-blooded killer like this he hasn't had in a very long time. Um, I like this a lot. Um, I would say, say next 
year would be his first Oscar nomination, but I'll just say it. I think this is his best Oscar nomination. Um, I, I think it's really interesting that he was the sole nomination from this, especially because you also forget how good Blake Lively is as an actress um, until you see this movie. Um, but this movie as a, as a full circle is just all around 10 for me. And then of course I, I always forget that John Hamm is in it. And then I'm like, Oh, if John Hamm's here, so is his penis. Hello. <laughs> so like, I, I just, I like this movie a lot and I like him. I think this is really good. Um, I would not have been mad if this had been a win. I'm just saying this is really damn good. Um, he is menacing. He is terrifying. He is so exciting. I feel like the movie actually does suffer when he's not on screen, but that's maybe because I think that he makes the film. And then of course we had like the final, which I'm, I'm interested. It didn't hear your thoughts on this. Cause I don't know if you know um, this, I think was the final film of Pete Postlewaite. And I don't know if I'm saying his last name wrong, but Pete Postlewaite who played, I think his name was Patty, the flower shop owner got a BAFTA nomination for supporting actor here. Hmm. Did you know that? No. Yeah. So I'm interested to A, hear your thoughts on that nomination, and B, would you have nominated Pete for an Oscar? Because I would not have. And I don't think it's a good BAFTA nomination, but I don't know if he had died before the nominations came out and it was like a posthumous thing or not. But yeah. Anyway, Renner, excellent here. Bravo. Uh, so I would not nominate Pete uh, Postulate or however you say it. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, he's fine. Uh, he's one of those guys who always shows up, and um, he does what's required of him, um, and he's usually pretty good. Uh, here in the town, I don't feel like uh, the material's quite there for him to really warrant a nomination, um, but he um, does fine. Um, the movie itself and Jeremy Renner, I feel, are both very competent in the way that they are executed. I don't know if I would quite put it up there with greatest heist crime movies of all time, but it's very well done. And I think Renner is quite good in it. Um, I don't think it's anything groundbreaking across the board, uh, but uh, Renner and Affleck and everyone um, are certainly demonstrating uh, that they know what they're doing and um, they are, you know, in full control of their craft. Um I like Renner in this one, but I find myself getting a bit, I find my mind wandering um, while watching this movie at times, and um, even when he is on screen, because even though he is good and the movie is good, um, I feel like I, there's just not quite enough there for me to really start picking things apart and peeling back layers. Um, so I'm kind of in this weird middle ground um, with this one, where I think it's good, I just don't know that it ever really surpasses pretty good for me. Okie doke. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's bad by any means. It's just, uh, I think it's well done. To be honest, I I love the the contrast. Like I'm like, greatest movie ever. And you're like, it's I. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have no major complaints about it. Um, Affleck, I think, is a really great director, um, and he knows how to um, really put all the pieces together. Um, I like him much better as a director than I do as an actor, 
And I think Renner is, you know, doing exactly what he needs to do. I just don't know if um, I would have nominated this one myself. Oh, okay. Well, fuck my prediction of you (laughs) choosing Renner. Noted. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So next we have Mark Ruffalo nominated for The Kids Are All Right. This is his first of three nominations. Uh, Going into this, he gets a win with the New York Film Critics, and he's recognized with BAFTA, SAG, Critics' Choice, and the Spirit Awards. In The Kids Are All Right, Mark Ruffalo plays Paul, a man whose biological um, adopted offspring uh, pull him into their family's uh, lives when they track him down to meet him. So how do you feel about Mark Ruffalo and the kids are all right? I had a sexual awakening with Mark Ruffalo in the kids are all right. Like I've known that I was gay since I was three years old and I had had sex with men before 2010. So it's not like I hadn't ever been with a man before. Brandon, can we talk about the chest hair of Mark Ruffalo, please? Yes. I... <laughs> I think we might be on the same page here. Um, I am fully, full. I mean, I have daddy issues, but I am fully blaming my love of older men on Mark Ruffalo here for the kids are all right, because I just wanted to smell his sweat coming off of his chest so many times watching this movie. It almost makes me so upset when I watch it and I know he's having sex with women because I'm like, that's not what you're supposed to do, Mark Ruffalo. No, do not put it in there. Um, Oh my God. Delicious is this man in this movie. But I would like to talk about his performance today. Um, I think this is great. This is my favorite of Mark Ruffalo's nominations. There is something really special that he's doing here. Now, when we had talked about the women, I gave Annette Benning my runner-up spot for this movie. But I will say the star of this movie for me is Ruffalo. Um, I think I fully, and I and I take it a little differently now at, well, I'll be 29 tomorrow, but at 28 than I did um, at 18 when it came out. And... That's because, you know, I think it's one of those things you have to mature with life and understand how life works a bit more. Because I think when you watch this movie at such a young age, you really identify with the kids who are all right. And then as you get older, you identify more with the parents and you see it in their perspective. I see it in, obviously, Jules and What's-Her-Face's perspective, but I understand what Ruffalo is doing here to get his... Um, face in the mix. I mean, here is a guy who literally jerked off in a cup because it sounded more fun than donating blood, according to, you know, his words in the film, which it does. Um, But, you know, he doesn't contact them. They contact him. So his whole life has changed completely around. And then he goes through this thing where he's loved and then hated. Yeah, he does some shitty things there. I get it. But he didn't ask for any of that. I'm sorry, but I'm on Team Ruffalo there with his character. Like, he was completely blindsided. He had a he had his thing going. He was completely in his, the zone. And it also, when it comes to something like what he does with Julianne Moore's character, she initiated it. It's not like he raped her. 
It's not like he forced her into it. I'm sorry, but they were shitty as fuck to him. And Ruffalo really deserved, his character deserved better here. And um, yeah, I think he he gives me that whole gambit of emotions. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit more. There's a the film You Can Count On Me from 2000 with Laura Linney. Um, we had talked about that, obviously. The, his character here kind of reminds me of what would have happened to that character had he gotten his shit together eventually. I don't know if that makes sense, but for me it does. So I'm going to stick with it. But yeah, um, Ruffalo, Sexual Awakening, delicious. Give me that chest hair. And um, yeah, an amazing, amazing performance. So when I uh, went to see this movie, um, I was not out yet uh, publicly or with myself. But I still remember watching that movie and thinking, like feeling things while watching Mark Ruffalo in this film. And for some reason, I it, it took me a long time to connect the dots, like a few years after this movie still. But yeah, I remember watching this movie thinking, oh, oh shit, while watching Mark Ruffalo. Uh, and even beyond his, his attractiveness, he is pretty good in this film, um, playing someone who is not really a father who has kind of just now been forced into a father figure role, so to speak. Um, Cause yeah, he is literally the dad to a couple of kids, uh, but only in the biological sense. Um, you know, he was never really there. And as far as I recall, he doesn't have any kids of his own intentionally with anyone else. So these two teenagers just kind of show up in his life. Like, I think it's at his, like, he's like a, like a little farm or like a grocery garden Rest. thing. Oh, okay. And all of a sudden he's, he's the dad to these two adolescents. And um, I think he struggles with that a bit. Cause he's trying to be like this, this cool dad figure. And he kind of takes on more of a older brother, cool uncle kind of role. And uh, it challenges him a bit because he's sort of in his own state of arrested development. Like, it kind of makes you wonder if he has really grown as a person in the last 10 or 15 years or if he kind of reached a point when he was, say, like, 28 and stayed there. Um, so that's sort of the, um, the psychological struggle that this character has, um, sort of being thrust into this new role that he never really planned on being in. Um, and then, you know, he kind of accidentally, of no fault, mostly of his own, of sort of turning this family upside down, um, which, you know, as you said, he never really asked for. It just kind of happened. And, um, you know, he and Julianne Moore's character have their consensual affair, um, which leads to, you know, naturally more drama. And um, he gets kind of thrust out of this group he was just brought into and I think there's a brief mourning remorseful period um, for him and once again he never really asked for any of this so I think he finds himself in a really weird in-between place while also feeling shut out um, so this is a character who I think has a lot more going on than a lot of people give him credit for because Frankly, I think it has a lot to do with Mark Ruffalo just being so fucking pretty and uh, people lusting after him. Um, 
but yeah, he uh, he has a lot going on. He I think beneath the surface um, that people don't always see, at least on the first watch. Yeah, this is one of those quiet performances, but he is doing so much. And I, yeah, I, I will say again, and I don't, maybe I didn't say it, but I will say it now. This is his best nomination in my opinion. Yeah, I like it. I don't know if I would call it his best. I have to think about that, but I think this is quite good. Um, I don't know. I feel like, well, you you can count on me had it happened a decade prior, but was this maybe you think when people when awards people first started really taking him seriously, like was this the oh. role where all of a sudden he was now automatically in Oscar conversations before his movies even come out? Well, you can count on me. He was kind of in the critics and um, indie spirit. I don't think he got anything higher than indie spirit or maybe the critics' choice. I don't know what you would consider higher. I guess critics' choice. Um, but yeah, this was, this was the one, I mean, cause you got to think this was three nominations in a period of four years for him. Yeah. Or five years. He was only, you know, with, between this Fox catcher and spotlight, he had a really good Oscar run going for a little bit and then spotlight happened and it, he didn't have anything else. Um, but yeah, I mean, he just won an Emmy, so he's still there. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like he's one of those actors who kind of he started being taken seriously later in life. I think that has a lot to do with him being. I honestly, I feel like it has a lot to do with him being attractive because I feel like uh, when it comes to men, they're not taken so seriously by awards people earlier on. Like there are some exceptions, but like you see that with Oscar history, where Academy members are more likely to nominate a pretty young actress than they are a pretty young man. For some yeah. reason, I feel like with men, they have to like earn their stripes in a really weird way um and it's kind of the opposite with women where like after a while they stop getting recognized and of course there are some exceptions once again but um yeah it seems like it, it wasn't until like the kids are all right um that mark ruffalo finally started getting buzz like he didn't even have to you didn't even have to see his movie to realize that he was in contention you know he kind of reached that status yeah, definitely. I mean, he remember too. He did the normal heart in between his nominations as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great film. If you haven't seen it, it's on HBO Max. Go check it out. It's really damn good. Um, and then of course he had that really. Remember when he got nominated for that Golden Globe that everyone was like, "What movie?" It was like, uh, uh, "Infinitely Polar Bear." Oh yeah, I never right. saw that. You did you see it? No. You, yeah, yeah, no one saw that. Everyone was like, what? Mo- what? So, like, he's shown up randomly in these films. But, uh, yeah, more Daddy Mark Ruffalo showing off his chest, please. Yes. <laughs> yes. So our uh, final supporting actor is Jeffrey Rush, nominated for The King's Speech. This is his fourth of four nominations. Going into this, you could say he was a bit of a contender as he takes BAFTA and the National Society of Film Critics, and he's part of the SAG Ensemble win. He's also recognized um, at the Globes uh, with SAG as an individual performer and with Critics' Choice, the Los Angeles Film Critics, and with the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards. He's the only one in this lineup with that distinction. In the King's Speech, Jeffrey Rush plays a struggling actor 
slash speech therapist who is recruited to help the King of England get over his stutter. So how do you feel about Jeffrey Rush in the King's speech? I am like really happy we're finally talking about Jeffrey Rush, but I'm also really sad at the same time because I, I realized as you were talking, I was like, because we are taking our hiatus, I was like, oh my God, we're, it's going to be, wow, okay, this is it. Um, I loved Jeffrey Rush's nominations as a whole. I think he has some of the most fascinating group of nominations. I don't know if you've seen them all between there's this, Quills, Shakespeare in Love, and then Shine. They're fascinating. Um, so the fact that we got here is pretty cool. Um, I love Jeffrey Rush in the kid or in the kids. All right. Jesus in the King's speech. I think he is hilarious in such a serious film. I think he brings a jolly laughability to what's going on here. He also obviously is very serious and he's fun um, he feels like a kid in a candy shop, like a grown-up kid here, and it really plays well. The whole trio works really well together, but Rush, for me, is the – is the he stands out in the best of ways. Um, I always feel, too, maybe it was me – maybe you could saw it as well, but I felt like when he was – when they were in his office um, working on the King's Speech um, – there was always kind of like a fish eye lens going on when he was there. And I don't know why or what the intention was for that fish lens, fish eye lens going on there. But it was so interesting to me that this quirky lens and way to view the scene was only when he was there because it, I don't know if this makes sense, but he almost felt like the court jester to the seriousness of this film, and maybe that's why, but I think it works so well. Um, I have no complaints about this one. I will say, this might be the first time I've said this this entire season, this supporting actor lineup for me, there is not one bad one in this bunch. It's going to be one of those rankings where it's like, I have to put someone at five, and then I have to put someone at one, because every one of these guys are amazing here. Yeah, it's sort of like the um, the actress lineup from this year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2010. Pretty decent year. So I um, I really like Rush here in this film as well. Um, sort of like uh, Christian Bale. He is a, a character with a lot of vibrancy, but in a way that feels natural. Um, like it's by design. He's playing this wannabe Shakespearean stage actor who pays his bills by doing, you know, speech therapy. Um, like, we even get uh, to see an audition he does of Richard III, um, where Jeffrey Rush just really goes to 11, uh, really giving it his all in the most comedic way possible, because he's supposed to be good, but also a little bit a little bit hammy, but in a way that's kind of appropriate. And I feel like he strikes that balance really well in that scene and given this um eccentricity of of the guy he's playing um his mannerisms um and the way he sort of commands attention really works um tom hooper's direction in this film is one that i find myself defending 
more often than criticizing. I know Tom Hooper gets a lot of shit just in general, and a lot of it is warranted. Um, but I feel like his his uh, style works here in the King's Speech. It works for the story he's telling. But then he kept doing it for his other films that don't warrant it. And that's where a lot of the, the shit comes in. So um, the fisheye lens uh, that you mentioned, it has a, a voyeuristic um, POV to it. Like you're looking in on something that you're not supposed to be seeing. And um, when you have the King of England taking secret speech classes so that he can speak publicly and not be humiliated and thereby humiliate his entire country on the global stage, there is um, a bit of secrecy that goes along with these meetings, which is, I think, where that fisheye comes from. Tom Hooper's kind of a cerebral filmmaker in that way. Uh, he plays around a lot with headroom and the way the character is positioned within the frame um, in relation to his environment. And I think it really works here. And you can you can get a lot of character development or a lot of character details from the direction in this film. And I think Jeffrey Rush is no exception to that because he's a character who takes up a lot of room um, being this sort of uh, tenacious um, actor figure. Uh, so yeah, I think he really works in this film uh, in a role that could be upstagey um, and stop and spotlight stealing um, in another actor and director's hands. But um, here, I think it all comes together pretty well. Okay. I, when you explain it like that, I see what you mean. Thank you. Yeah, I, I like the direction of this. That I know people hate on it mostly because David Fincher did not win. I feel like that's the main reason. But um, Tom Hooper went on to do this with his subsequent films to lesser effect. And um, I don't know, maybe the, the Oscar win went to his head a little bit and he decided this was going to be like his auteur style. But it, it doesn't always work. So I feel like that in addition to it not being Fincher is why Hooper gets a lot of flack. But here, I think it comes together, um, cast, director, and story pretty well. Yeah, I would like to comment on that, by the way. Listen, David Fincher, yes, absolutely. I I get it. I get it. But you know who else was in that lineup? Darren Aronofsky? Darren Aronofsky. If you're going to give and be pissed about a director not winning that year, Aronofsky is right there. You're welcome. Indeed, he was there. He was there. He was. Um, we have some questions um, from two people regarding... Let me see. Yes. Let's start with C.J. Crowder. Andrew Garfield received several nominations for his role in The Social Network, including a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, but he didn't land a SAG or Oscar nomination, even though the movie was very popular with both groups. Why did he miss out on a nomination? Well, I think earlier when you mentioned that John Hawks was likely the one who swooped in and took that fifth spot, um, I think that's probably accurate. Um, on paper, at least, it definitely looks like that, um, that he was the unlikely replacement of um, Garfield. Um, so I think that's probably the reason. 
So on paper, it doesn't make sense why he wasn't there. And on a personal level, it also doesn't make sense that he wasn't there because Andrew Garfield deserved a nomination for the social network. And you have to remember, we, we were like 18 at that time. Facebook was not, there was still MySpace around. It was quote unquote dying, but people were still on it. And Facebook isn't the conglomerate monster than it is now. Facebook changed a lot uh, when it after the 2016 election. Actually, the the, the year of that election. Um, and this movie really defined our generation as a whole. It, I mean, it did. Um, this was a generational movie, and the hype behind the social network alone should have carried. Rooney Mara to a supporting actress nomination should have carried Andrew Garfield to a supporting actor nomination. I mean, it really was the bee's knees at the time. So I don't get why that didn't happen. Um, I also don't know who I would take out for Garfield. That's a hard answer. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it was deserved. Um, I I, per, I would have welcomed him being nominated because I think he is doing some really um, some really good stuff here in the social network. Um, you know, up against Jesse Eisenberg, who who's giving a completely different type of performance. Um, and I think Garfield's pretty good. I love the scene where the bed catches on fire, or whatever that is when he the song. Yeah, I love that scene. Um, that could have been his Oscar clip right there. He's also wearing some cute boxer shorts in it. So it's nice. Also, justice for Brenda's song. Right. Did you, side note, did you remember that article that came out like a year ago after Crazy Rich Asians where she got denied an audition because they said she wasn't Asian enough? What? Wow. Yes, look it up. Brenda Song came out and was like, I, because she wanted the lead role, which I get. It was a star-making role. And they, she wasn't even allowed to audition because the producer said she wasn't Asian enough. What the fuck does that even mean? Wow. Did I ever tell you uh, regarding that, too? I'm getting on a rant here. But <laughs> you know what? I will tell you personally later. I don't know if I'm actually – I think I would ruin myself if I came forward on that one. At the moment, I'll tell you later. Never mind. Let's keep you in suspense. Um, okay, moving on. Um, uh, Christoph, with the Academy's occasional. What is this word? <laughs> wow. Uh, proclivity? What? P R O C L I V I T Y. Proclivity. Thank you. Wow. The His. His. Germ, his English is his second language, and I he just stumped a first. Wow, okay, okay, it means like the, the inclination to do something. Okay, with the academy's occasional that to nominate singers when they also can act, would Justin Timberlake have had a shot at supporting actor nomination if he had campaigned for it? Also, would he have deserved one? Um, I would say maybe and no, I would say no and no, yeah. I'm I'm open to the possibility of it happening because who knows what the terrain may have looked like. But um, on a personal level, I would say, no, I would not have nominated him. Well, you also have to realize you have to think in that time, Christoph, as an Academy voter 
in 2010 and also American culture. Timberlake got a lot of shit for being cast in this. People still made fun of him. And I mean, he's even when he did like trouble with the curve, people were like, why is Justin Timberlake acting? Um, He really wasn't taken seriously in this role in American culture. I don't know how it was in Germany at that time. But, yeah, I don't think he ever had a shot, and I don't think he deserved it. Yeah, I don't think – yeah, as I'm thinking about it now, I don't recall anyone ever really taking him that seriously in it. Right, and right. it's not – and it's not even really, like, a star-making turn in any regards. Like, I'm struggling to think of an example now. But, like, when a, when a musician will do a movie role and it's like, oh, wow, they've got some chops – this is not that kind of role. Like he's fine in the movie, but it's it's not mind blowing whatsoever. Yeah, I mean he was given a lot of shit from this, like cast an actual actor type of shit. Um yeah. so yeah, we gave her a shot. Um anything else? No, I think that covers it. All right, let us move on. These are your leading actor nominations for 2010. They are Javier Hola. Uh, when you won your Oscar for No Country for Old Men, you managed to scare an entire nation uh, with a haircut. Uh, but even more impressively than that, you've inspired, delighted, and moved us in at least two languages in your films. And you do all of the above in your haunting performance this year in Beautiful. <laughs> Jeff, dude. Dude, you um, you won this award last year. You know, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if like you maybe gave someone else a chance, staggered it a little bit? I mean, how much is enough? Hmm? Think about it. But you are such a good actor that this year you took on a role that has already won another actor an Oscar, and you made it indelibly your own when you strapped on that eye patch in True Grit. Jesse, I'm still waiting for you to accept my friend request on Facebook. Serious. But you have captured the spirit of an entire generation, and you've inspired lonely young men hunched over keyboards around the world. Your power is a spark that connects the social network. Colin, Colin, right here. So I hear the uh, the queen saw the film. She enjoyed it, which is good, right? As I assume you plan on going back home sometime. Yeah. But not only the queen was inspired, but all of us, by uh, the man you played who struggled so eloquently to achieve his destiny in the king's speech. James. James. Oh, you're back. Hey, how's it going? Um, James, you have so famously played such icons as James Dean and Allen Ginsberg, but forget all that. You are the number one reason children get picked up late from school because their mothers are watching you on General Hospital. <laughs> hey, actors act, and none better than you, in the searing and visceral 127 hours.
All right. Let us start this year with Javier Bardem as Uxbal in Beautiful. This is his third of three nominations and his most recent. Um, going into Oscar night, very interesting way this nomination came to be, which we'll get to. Um, he only had a BAFTA nomination for lead actor, but he does win at Cannes Film Festival for actor. He tied with Elio uh, Germano for La Nostra Vida. Um, in Beautiful, again, Javier plays Uspal, who is a uh, father who is diagnosed with cancer. And the story is about him and redeeming his life while also still, I can never really explain Beautiful. I might have to tag you in on this one. Um, he's a man who gets cancer. He's got his kids. He tries to better his life while at the same time doing what he has to do to survive, um, accidentally murders a bunch of people. He's haunted by a, the spirits. It's hard to explain. Can you tag in on this? Maybe. Um, <laughs> I understand what I mean by it's hard to explain. Yeah, I do. Uh, Beautiful is kind of an exhausting movie, in my mm -hmm. opinion, in the way that Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu films tend to be, at least for me. Um, Javier Bardem is quite good in it, I will say. I feel like he carries this very heavy film quite well. Um, there is a lot going on, as you said. He is dying of a terminal illness. He's the father of a couple of kids, and he's trying to find basically who their who their caregiver is going to be when he eventually dies, um, which is looking like it's going to be soon. Um, he has a weird, tumultuous relationship with this. Is she a prostitute or is she just like a lady of the neighborhood? I'm not really sure. And, you know, he's running this business with a bunch of um, Chinese immigrant employees. Uh, I guess I'll spoil a little bit this 10-year-old movie. Uh, it's really cold during this time of year, and he gets these really cheap gas-powered space heaters to keep them warm while they sleep at night in the basement of this business. The heaters malfunction, and there's a gas leak, and everyone dies. Like three dozen employees die overnight, um, which is basically his fault, um, considering he's the one that provided the really cheap uh, heaters, and he has guilt about that. A lot of shit happens in this two and a half hour movie. Inuritu has a way of really, really putting his his actors through some really, some really hard times, and. Um, with Beautiful, um, this is, I think, is this the first Inuritu movie we're getting that's not this big mosaic-type story where it's just, like, following one person? Um, if if so, this, you know, Javier Bardem is carrying the entire gravity of this story on his shoulders, and um, I think it, it comes through pretty well. Um, Beautiful is a hard movie to watch, in my opinion. I had to break it up into a few pieces just because it's a lot. Um, but that is no no knock against Javier Bardem, who I think delivers throughout the film. Um, 
yeah, it's just it's a hard film to watch. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it's uh it's definitely not easy. This movie, I had only seen this twice, revisiting this for this episode. But when it had come out for the nominations um back in 2010. And it is exhausting. It there's a lot going on. Um, Bardem, this movie's also, I don't know if it's, I'm gonna say it's unintentional. It's unintentionally scary at times. Yeah. Like, it, like that when he f- discovers the bodies, th- it's fucking horrifying. It's like their faces are terrifying. It almost reminds me of that scene in Parasite with the kid eating the cake when the guy mm-hmm. comes up from. The- the basement you're like oh fuck like that's that type of moment here um but bardem is really no pun intended beautiful in his performance um there's something you your heart breaks with him your your whole being you really have to invest your whole self into this character and that's why you leave so exhausted because of you know what he's going through i mean early on when he finds out he's sick. He's like peeing and you could see the blood coming out from his pee. And it's like, you're like, Oh no. So like right there, you're like, you're already invested. And yeah, Bardem does some really fascinating work here. I'm, um, I'm, I'm very pleasantly pleased with this one. Um, are you familiar with how he actually got this nomination though? No. Okay. For those of you who don't know, um, Bardem was very much under the radar this entire um, award season, and I'm not I'm not sure if this I think this happened before BAFTA or maybe it was because of BAFTA was the only one. Ms. Academy Award winner Julia Roberts held a press conference and literally just pretty you can you can look this up you can Google it. Pretty much held a press conference and said, why aren't you watching Javier Bardem in Beautiful? Why is he not leading this entire awards season? Why are you ignoring one of the best performances ever put on film? And then he gets an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. The power. Po- <laughs> Did you just say the power? I said her power. Oh, I said the power. <laughs> but I mean, listen. Not only is it a deserving nomination, I understand why she did that, but, like, the fact that Julia Roberts said, get your shit together and give him a nomination, and then he gets one, that is queen bitch status. Julia Roberts and Martin Scorsese are who we have to thank for these lineups. (laughs) Right? So, yes. You guys got a lot to look up this episode between that and Brenda's song. I mean, there's, you got a lot of homework. You're welcome. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, every scene of Beautiful, I just found myself going, Jesus Christ, with every new, like, re- uh, revelation about what's going on in uh, Oops Ball's life and all the new ways his life was made difficult. Like, Inuritu is a sadistic filmmaker, <laughs> in my opinion. Like, he is sadistic toward his characters. He's sadistic toward his actors. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult movie to stomach, but... Um, Somehow Javier Bardem manages to to really I don't know carry it. I don't get it. Yeah, I I just feel like Bardem. I really just hope he took like a six month sabbatical after this film 
because I would have needed like two years to recover from from playing this character. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, let's move on to Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network. This is his sole nomination thus far. Um, he was a possibility to win because he gets a Golden Globe nomination for Actor in a Drama, BAFTA nomination for Best Actor, Critics' Choice nomination for Actor. He wins the National Board of Review and the National Society of Film Critics for Actor. But then he is double nominated at SAG for Actor and Cast. In The Social Network, again, Jesse plays Mark Zuckerberg, uh, chronicling the days of Harvard to the release of the Facebook to Facebook to being sued by everyone under the sun. And uh, yeah, Brandon, thoughts? I really like Jesse Eisenberg in this movie. Um, This film and this performance um, have aged pretty well for me. I remember when it first came out, I thought it was fine. Um, I don't remember if I said that when we did this Best Picture episode for Patreon, but like everyone around me loved this movie, and I thought it was pretty good. I didn't dislike it by any means. I didn't quite get the love. But being removed from 2010, uh, this award season, and just seeing how Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg have stayed relevant in the worst of ways over the last decade. Uh, I feel like this movie has a a newfound relevance, and um, I really like Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal. Um, You know, how close it is to the actual Mark Zuckerberg doesn't really matter to me. Um, What he's representing here, um, I think, is quite uh, mischievous in a way. Um, and also kind of sinister in its own regard. Uh, this sort of hyper cerebral, borderline psychotic, um, selfish, egocentric, male privilege douchebag. Uh, he he brings it to life pretty well. Um, Eisenberg, I feel like, is another one of those actors, kind of like John Hawks, who, like, when this when this nomination came through, it seemed like he was going to be, like, the perennial um, conversation piece. Um, and it quite hasn't quite worked out in that way for him. Um, but um, that's really of no fault of his own, I feel. Um, that's just, you know, how the industry works and all that but um i think this is quite a good performance that really marries its film pretty well um i think his style and his approach uh matches fincher's directorial approach pretty well um fincher is one of those directors who i feel like is criticized for being a little bit too cold and mechanical at times and eisenberg's uh performance has a complementary cold and mechanical feel to it while having um, a sort of low-key, colorful presence. Uh, It's sort of all under the radar with this guy. Uh, It's not always an easy person to read, but it's um, a character I find myself leaning into quite a bit. Yeah, I find the evolution of Jesse Eisenberg to be so interesting, especially because this really was set up as the year of the Eisenberg. But to ha- it's so like he's worked consistently since then. But 
and I don't know if this is a fair comparison because she didn't work consistently, but well, not in the type of projects he did. But I, I feel like his nomination here was the height and fall of his career in the way Sally Kirkland's was, too, because they haven't. And what I mean by that, because neither of them really reached the height of their fame in, since or before um, Zuckerberg, you know, or Zuckerberg, Jesus, Eisenberg, um, you know, has had a few hits here. But like even the return to Zombieland and like the Now You See Me series, like didn't really get him to the level that we all thought he was going to stay at. So it's interesting to me how his career was kind of like the height and fall at the same time of this nomination. I will say Jesse Eisenberg invented fast talking acting with this film um, for sure. Um, The whole... Let me rephrase that. The Gilmore Girls invented fast talking acting. Eisenberg invented fast talking film acting. There you go. Um, I think he's good. I think I think it's a really good performance. Um, I think it is very one note y though compared to what every everyone else around him is doing. Um, I do find it to be underwhelming, and he gets outshined by almost every cast member, in my opinion. From Andrew Garfield's Tour de Force, from Rooney Mara's Tour de Force, from Brenda Song's Tour de Force. There's a lot happening around him that I feel like he gets swallowed up in. And if you're going to lead a movie and you're going to get the lead Oscar nomination, the sole Oscar acting nomination, you really got to not be swallowed whole by your whole cast. So while I think it's good, it's not my favorite. See, all of the... um action or whatever you want to call it happening around him i think actually strengthens his performance like um andrew garfield's um uh i don't know if you call it a meltdown but when he finds out you know that he's been basically pushed out of facebook like he's been out bought in the stocks or whatever and he has his freak out moment um i feel like it actually amplifies the choice that Eisenberg and Fincher have made, and Sorkin to a certain degree, um, to have Eisenberg play Zuckerberg as this very stoic, removed presence. Um, So I see what you're saying, how it feels like he's sort of um, stagnant, but I think that's by choice, and all of the um, narrative action happening around him draws attention to that choice in a way that justifies it or at least that's my reading of it all yeah I, like i definitely see what you mean for sure i'm not arguing that i just i for me i just i think everyone else around him is just so much better so it does kind of like make me scratch my head that why didn't someone else get in? Was this because of the hype of the social network at the time? Did he actually earn it? I mean, I'm just, I'm very middle of the road where I don't know how to react, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you're not the only person I know who feels that way. I know a lot of people who think that Eisenberg is just, you know, too flat um, in the performance, 
but I I think that flatness is a is a choice, or at least to externalize flatness. I don't think he's entirely flat on the inside. I think that's just how the character um, expresses himself or does not express himself. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Let us get to Jeff Bridges. He's playing Rooster Cogburn in the remake of True Grit. This is his sixth of seven nominations. And going into Oscar night, he gets BAFTA, Critics' Choice, and SAG nominations for this role. Um, this is a remake. He is playing a role that won, quote-unquote, won uh, John Wayne an Oscar in 1969. Um, and it, he plays a drunk who's hired as a bounty hunter by a leading actress in a supporting role nomination by the name of Haley Steinfeld. And uh, he goes out to catch her father's killer. So we're revisiting True Grit. You were higher on the film than I was. But what do you think about Bridges here? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Jeff Bridges, greater than symbol, John Wayne. Um, yes. Like five greater than symbols, as people on the Internet tend to do it. Um, yes. Jeff Bridges is Rooster Cogburn in my mind. Um, like when I hear the name of the character, I think of Bridges, not John Wayne. Um, I've seen the original True Grit once, and it was a long time ago. Um, so maybe I would think of it differently now. I'll give it that benefit of the doubt. Uh, but I didn't really care for it, and I thought John Wayne was just okay. Um, here in this True Grit, I think Jeff Bridges brings a lot of um, exuberance to the character and some layers and nuance and humor that was not quite there with John Wayne, or at least, you know, it wasn't quite as present um, before. Um, I think Jeff Bridges is honestly just a hoot, and this is one of those characters that really just allows him to sort of lean into the Jeff Bridges-isms of it all. I know we weren't super fond of him in Hell or High Water, but here um, in True Grit, this is a more, it's a, it's, well, Hell or High Water is a genre film too, but this is more of, I guess, a stylized genre film than Hell or High Water is. It's less down to earth, I guess you could say. It sort of leans into the old Hollywood Western style in a sort of modern twist. And so Jeff Bridges, I think, gets to play up things a little bit more and be just a little more um, eccentric and zany. Um, and yeah, I do, I like this version much more than the original. And I think it's also just a pretty good movie. Um, and I think Jeff Bridges, you know, does what needs to be done um, here in this film to bring Rooster Cogburn to life. Because, I mean, if if that character does not work, if that performance does not work, then really the movie doesn't have much of a, a backbone. Like, the foundation sort of crumbles if the actor playing Rooster isn't good. And um, Jeff Bridges, um, I think, really owns this character. And um, the movie is um, made better because of it. So taking out my bias of this film, I've also only ever seen the original once. Um, shout out Kim Darby. Um, but 
this is too similar for me to the Hell or High Water nomination. This is the same exact thing almost, just different time period. I don't feel like Bridges is challenging himself. I don't feel like he's challenging the audience. I don't feel like he's giving us anything we haven't seen Bridges do. There's a Bridges shtick. This is it. Especially coming off of a win for... um, what was that movie that he won for? Um, Crazy Heart. Crazy Heart. He's definitely got this country twang stick that he likes to do. Um, I'm just going to leave this brief. This doesn't work for me. And um, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with anything you said. But I feel like for some reason it comes together more so for me in this one than his others. Maybe it's because it's a... Um, a genre film and he's able to just sort of let loose a little bit and doesn't have to be quite so married to reality um, so I don't disagree with what you're saying about you know the Jeff Bridges isms and the things that he's sort of known for but um, for some reason here in True Grit it um, it just works better for me than in some of his other ones yeah I will say I do agree with you when I think of Rooster Cogburn um, I think of him because Fuck John Wayne. Yes. Hard without lube. Fuck him. Um, I will say, if you are a Catherine Hepburn stan and you can stand de- stand dealing with um, John Wayne for 90 minutes, they did make a film, a sequel to True Grit, called Rooster Cogburn with Hepburn as the love interest. She's the only reason to watch that shitty movie. If you really want to see a sequel to True Grit that follows only john wayne but has the addition of Catherine hepburn check it out it's not necessary but it's happy so did she lose a bet or something like it's interesting even the poster is looks like a 1940s love story <laughs> it's did, i just want did, you to look it up really quick look it up and did, i just want to did someone your... did someone blackmail Catherine hepburn into being in this the the poster reminds me of oh here it is this like what is that <laughs> what is the expression on his face what I don't... like I don't understand what what emotion he is trying to convey and she looks way too happy to be seated next to John Wayne isn't that ridiculous oh no <laughs> yeah that's a no. That, yeah, and this came six years after the first one. Like, and why? Why? That was an un- it's an unnecessary film. I've never even seen it, and it's canceled. It's it's you're you're you you do not even need it. You're welcome. You're welcome, people. I'm giving you guys so much information this episode. All right, moving on. Yeah. Let's get to this year's greatest half of an Oscar hosting pair that the Academy has ever seen i mean greatest host james franco as aaron ralston in 127 hours this is his sole nomination going into oscar night nominations from golden globes act and drama bafta critics choice and sag but he wins the indie spirit award for best actor in 127 hours james franco spends 127 hours as a rock climber trapped in some rocks where he has to cut off his own arm to escape and survive what do we think? 
You know, I think he's fine here. Um, he's definitely given enough to do um, to keep a movie that mostly takes place in one location um, interesting for its runtime. Um, you know, he's not there for the entire runtime. It takes like what, 20, some, 20, 30 minutes for him to actually get stuck. And there's some like dream sequences and flashbacks and hallucinations and whatever you want to call it sprinkled throughout um, to get us, you know, to stretch our legs and get us out of that location. But, um, you know, he's definitely playing on as many levels as he can reach. Um doing interesting things with his voice and face and the camera sort of becomes his scene partner in a way. Um, sort of like how we talked about Julian Schnabel's camera becoming Willem Dafoe's scene partner in At Eternity's Gate. Uh, Danny Boyle's camera often becomes James Franco's scene partner in 127 Hours. Um, this is one of Boyle's more formally interesting endeavors um you know he's always been one to sort of re-break his own mold and do something different um but here it feels especially relevant considering james franco doesn't really have a does not really have a traditional scene partner for huge chunks of this movie um so he's playing to the practical camera um the one in the film with him as a prop, and then also to the sort of omniscient camera being, you know, Danny Boyle's lens. So I think Franco is doing some interesting stuff here. It's not really, it's not truly a one-man show um, in the way that other films um, are, but um, I think he's definitely keeping things lively and interesting uh, because this is, um, this could have been a challenging role for a lot of people, and this movie could have played as super flat and boring if it weren't for Franco and Boyle. Um, so, yeah, I think he's doing a pretty decent job. Yeah, um, the, the movie, not a fan of. Um, I will say I don't understand how this didn't get a cinematography nomination, especially with the, the pool scene with, um, or the 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 watering hole scene mm -hmm. with Kate Mara and Amber Tablin, um, great scene. Franco is being fine here, doing fine. Um, I like his work in The Disaster Artist a lot more. I think that should have been a, a nomination for him. Um, that is a nomination that I think was worthy. This is worthy, but not in the same way. Um, I listen. It, it, when as an actor, it is really hard to carry a film by yourself, or something when you're ninety, eighty, ninety percent yourself. He has to make and really give off being interesting to the audience and selling us this performance. So I, you know, I will give credit where credits due. There it is, but it. Something's missing. Something's missing from this performance. And I can't fully, even 11 years removed, can't put my finger on it. There's something 
I feel like I should care if this person dies, and I don't. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I kind of feel like James Franco does what needs to be done in this role, but he's not going above and beyond with it. Correct. It feels like anyone could have played this role, and if you're going to have a film where you're the sole person for it you need to make you need to make it to where it is yours and yours only Mm -hmm. and i don't he does that here for me yeah maybe it's because i'm a a cinematically minded person but there are times when i think about this movie and i feel like danny boyle is the star of it that makes sense like i don't know why but i feel like he's he's doing so much here and it works. It's not like he's out there doing the most. He's just playing around and finding a way to tell this story that's not just one guy talking into like a found footage type of camera. Yeah, was this too this was right after Boyle's win for Slumdog, right? Was this his follow up? This it might have been. I can look that up really quick. This would have been like two years later. Yeah, here I have it in front of me. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, this. Well, no, because he did. Yeah, this was his direct follow up to Slumdog. So I think there was still that afterglow mm-hmm. on, and it just did not deliver. Because Boyle is an also an interesting after Oscar win type of director, not. A whole lot going on for him. Well, he does a lot of uh, theater work, yeah. I think. So uh, if you're looking at like his IMDb, that's not going to be reflected there. But I, I'm pretty sure he does a decent amount of theater work over in like London. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's get to our final nominee here. Our winner, Colin Firth, as King George the Sixth. Uh, in the King's Speech, this is his second of two nominations consecutive from last year with a single man. And this is his win. He was the one to beat Golden Globe, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, LA Film Critics Award, the National or the New York Film Critics Association, and two wins at SAG for actor and cast. He won them across the board. His only nomination came in the form of National Society of Film Critics. They were not a fan of him to give him the win here. Um in the King's Speech, again, Colin Firth plays King George VI, who is um, thrown into the uh, realm of king. What what was it like? It was like a secession thing, right? Like, didn't his brother die? And it, his brother um, abdicated the throne. That's what the abdication. That's right. Um, I was like, it's not in a secession because it was because secession. Scandal. But yeah, it was a huge. I did you watch? I'm sorry. Side note: Did you watch this last season of The Crown? Yeah. I just I couldn't remember the word, but I just keep thinking of Helena Bonham Carter on the beach with her mom, with the Queen Mother. You can't blame everything in this family on the abdication. So that's what I was thinking of, but I couldn't think of the word. Anyway, back to this. Um, this is he's thrown into this world. He can't really speak in public. He gets very nervous. It can cause a huge scandal because the royal family is so cross the T's, dot the I's, very specific, especially at this time. 
And his wife, played by Helena Bonham Carter, gets him help, who we talked about earlier with Jeffrey Rush. So he overcomes this. All is well. We all lived happily ever after. Brandon, Colin Firth, what do we think here? I really like Colin Firth in this role. Um, he has a couple things going for him that are similar to um, some other folks nominated this year, like how we mentioned Mark Ruffalo's character in The Kids Are All Right um, was never really supposed to be a father. Um, king George was never really supposed to be king. He was, you know, the younger brother whose older brother like, was king for a brief time, but then abdicated uh, due to scandal. And um, George kind of got thrust into this global position. Like he's, you know, the king of just England. Um, well, I guess wherever they were colonizing at the time. But then, you know, this is a one of the most watched people in the world. Like, if the King of England makes a speech, um, everyone is listening. It's broadcast everywhere. If he makes an appearance, all eyes and cameras are on him. And um, this is a person with, um, I'm, I'm not like a psychiatrist or anything, but he, there's some anxiety that has manifested as a stutter. Um, and for someone who is meant to be... Um, a leader and figurehead of a country, um, this is a huge detriment to him. And um, there's a lot of pressure and humiliation um, that comes with it. And, um, you know, he seeks help or help is sought on his behalf. And um, his struggles, um, I think, come through pretty well. Um, this is a movie where I really feel for the character. Um, I... I get anxiety, um, meaning I understand it, and I also get it. Um, but I've never really had a stutter, but I feel like when I'm watching him struggle, I can I feel like I can relate to it in my own way. Um, and when the movie's over, or when it's you know tour, uh, nearing its um, climax, I, I feel a, tr a sense of triumph, um, sort of with... Um, the character and everyone around him. So um, I really like this. I feel like this is one that kind of gets shrugged off a lot, maybe because it felt like the inevitable winner in hindsight. But um, I, I kind of like it. So I don't know if I, I know I didn't mention this with when we talked about Rush, and I can't remember thinking back to, you know what's so fun about this, Brandon, is the fact that we have come, we have done so many episodes now that I have to be like, really think you know when we like did the second season we're like oh yeah the 70s we did this and talked about this and this i'm like did we talk about this i can't remember um going back to 2010 when i i don't know if i mentioned that uh i had seen this movie in the theater it was a packed theater at valley view um it, which was the very opposite of you know when i had seen blue valentine and was the only one in that theater there and you know how big those theaters are at valley view um packed to the gills and it really fascinated me that this movie because again i didn't understand it as much at the time that this movie was so interesting to people and i found this to be so fascinating and that is because of the performances and firth is fantastic he is so good here you feel his frustration you feel his wins you feel his losses you feel his pressure um absolutely amazing here um, I, I really like this. I think this is great. I think this is, um, this is a, 
performance that is definitely remembered fondly. Um, the, you know, Firth really gave an idea that this decade would be great for leading actor winners. Um, so, you know, there's that. Um, but yeah, I think this is a good one. I like it a lot. Um, I will say that, well, no, I'm not going to say that yet because, we, you know, if we get to him next episode whenever if we don't whatever if we don't i'll say it at some point but um yeah i think this is really good good for him i would also like to shout out eve best in this movie um if you ever watched nurse jackie she was uh amazing on that show she was dr o'hara and uh she's great in this but yeah um firth is really good here i like this yeah i do too i feel like this is another one that kind of gets that needs that gets defended a lot by its fans um, I don't know, maybe that's unjust, but I find myself defending the movie itself, just in general, all the time. So I think Firth is better than most people give him credit for in this. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have a question from JF196. Do you think Mark Wahlberg deserved a nomination for The Fighter? Who would you have replaced in lead if he did get in? I will say this because I think when we talk about replacement, it's usually our five spot. Right. So let's let's just avoid that part for right now. And when we put our five spot, that would obviously be who we would put in, I guess. Well, I can say that I would not nominate him anyway. Um, for some reason, Mark Wahlberg's one of those actors who always seems to be lacking something for me. Um, so I would not nominate him, and I don't think I would kick out anyone from this lineup for him. Yeah, I wouldn't nominate Wahlberg either. I know he was in contention that year, and a possibility, and it probably really chapped his ass that the film got in everywhere except for him. So, whatever. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't. Um, here's a good question from Ronnie Cassell. Bridges is not even close to the level of John Wayne's performance in the original True Grit. I, uh, but you, do you think he would have won if he didn't already the, win the year before? Oh, Ronnie. Ronnie, Ronnie loves his problematic faves. Um, I don't, I don't think Bridges would have won for True Grit, even if he had lost for Crazy Heart. I, I don't see him winning for True Grit. Um, and, you know, as far as, you know, the, the John Wayne of it all, we both addressed that um, we think Bridges is um, the better actor in that role. Correct. Now, here's an interesting thing that I want to point out because we're not going directly into t 2009. I think Ronnie is onto something, though, because Crazy Heart's whole campaign was the It's About Time nomination for Bridges. So if he didn't win there, I could have seen him winning for this. Maybe. I mean, it was the It's About Time Oscar campaign, and it actually worked for him. So I don't know. I think he I think he would have won for this had he not won for Crazy Heart. It's a possibility. For some reason, I just don't see a win for this one. I don't know why. It's just a just a gut feeling. But I suppose it could have happened. Well, Adam Sky 172727. I like your sevens. 
Um, who do you think was sixth place? Wahlberg, Ryan Gosling for Blue Valentine, or Robert Duvall for Get Low? I, of those three, I want to say Gosling. Um, I completely forgot about Duvall and Get Low, so I, I guess not that one. And I don't know, I guess Wahlberg was a previous nominee and his movie gets into Best Picture and, you know, how... Uh, I guess that's a factor. But for some reason, I want to say that Gosling was high up. Yeah, I would say on quote-unquote paper, because there is no science to this, Wahlberg makes sense if you want to do like a science way to it. Gosling on a personal level, though, and just gut feeling, I would say also was second or Mm. was sixth. So, yeah. well, that's it on the questions. Uh, rounding out the 2010s and queens before we get to the rankings a word from well me and our sponsor have you ever wanted to share a bit of the spotlight with i don't know meryl streep jessica lang angela bassett and maybe hopefully one day someone like aquafina or play a game where daniel kalua is on a team well this year queens you can thanks to today's sponsor the star draft as the listeners already know hollywood award season is finally almost almost here and god knows it's a long one this year and the star draft lets you be a part of it like never before what is it though well i'll tell you it's a little like fantasy football i don't know what that is but i do know that it meets the golden globes and i definitely know what that is and here's how it works head to the stardraft.com to create a league to invite friends or join a public league to make new ones draft a team of 10 actors and musicians musicians who are actors or actors who happen to sing i don't care how you do it just do it do you think olivia coleman is going to sweep every awards show this winter draft her i know she did the last time she did really really good hashtag the favorite before every nomination and award show set a lineup every time your actor or musician earns an accolade they earn your team points then sit back relax watch the awards ceremonies as you i don't know drink a beer eat some nachos fight with your grandma i don't care but rehearse your acceptance speech the site's top scoring team at the end of oscar night earns a cash prize hey you may not walk away with an oscar but you will walk away with cash in your pocket. It's 100% free, and because we love the Star Draft and you all so much, well, most of you, we've created a public league that you can join right now. Seriously, join us. All you have to do is sign up and join our Academy Queens League at thestardraft.com. That's www.thestardraft.com. We look forward to beating you all award season long and probably beating you more than others. Love you guys. Let's do this. You ready? Yeah. So um, as a refresher, your supporting actor nominees were Christian Bale in The Fighter, John Hawks in Winter's Bone, Jeremy Renner in The Town, Mark Ruffalo in The Kids Are All Right, and Jeffrey Rush in The King's Speech. And I'm putting Jeremy Renner at number five, not because I think it's bad. Um, It's just the one I find the least intriguing. It's perfectly competent, but that's about it for me. Wait, who was your five? I'm sorry. Jeremy Renner in the town. Man, I was way off. I was like, wait a minute. Hold up. Wait a minute. Um, Okay. So, again, there is not a bad performance in this lineup for me. Um, I really just have to find a way to rank these guys. Um, So, number five, I'm actually going to go with Christian Bale, the winner here. My only thing about it was what I mentioned earlier is that he always feels like he's on a 10 and he's not really evolving this character at all. But as a whole, 
it's great, and I have to put someone at five, so it's got to be Bale. Um, I'm going back and forth on my three and four, but I think I'm also going to put Bale um, down there. He's my number four. Um, not because I think he's bad. I think, you know, he's doing the thing. And like I said, when I left this movie, I, I knew he was going to win the Oscar. And that's not necessarily because it was um, to my personal taste. It just seemed like that kind of performance. Um, he's perfectly fine. He's doing his Christian Bale thing. But um, after a while, I kind of find myself tuning out a bit. So um, Christian Bale's my number four for the fighter. Number four, um, Jeffrey Rush. I love this performance. I think he's great in it. I think he's funny where he needs to be funny. I think it works all around, but he's got to go four. So Jeffrey Rush at four. Um, I think I'm going to put Mark Ruffalo at number three. Uh, my top three is honestly kind of interchangeable. There's something I really like about all three of them. Um, I think Mark Ruffalo is fantastic. Um, you know, he's gone on to give many more good performances after this. I think there's more going on with this character than initially meets the eye. But um, I think on in general, I get more out of the other two right now. So uh, Mark Ruffalo is number three for The Kids Are All Right today. I have to say Mark Ruffalo is also number three, but his chest hair is number one. Um, yeah, I think it's perfect where it's at i think he is the best thing about the kids all right and justice for his character because they he got the shit out of the stick um yeah ruffalo at three um i mean like i implied just there before this is a winner who could my winner in this category could change from day to day because i mean this is a pretty good lineup for the most part but i think right now i'm gonna put john hawks in my runner-up i think john hawks is great um he deserves more um than what he's gotten out of this industry the past decade winter's bone um is a really great demonstration of what he's able to do um with just a little bit um of screen time and dialogue um, but for some reason, I've always really liked Jeffrey Rush in The King's Speech. I remember watching this movie way back when with like my dad and my brother, and we got such a kick out of Jeffrey Rush. And um, for some reason, he's just one of those actors who I'm always excited about whenever he's in something, even when it's bad. I tend to enjoy whatever it is that he's doing. Um, and I just really like how his character functions, and he really... He really leans into the eccentricities of this character so much. So right now, uh, Jeffrey Rush is my winner for the King's Speech. All right. Well, I think I just had a stroke. I was going to say something. <laughs> I just totally blanked. All right. Never mind. Moving on. All right. My runner-up this year is Jeremy Renner, which means Brandon, you were correct. John Hawks is my winner here. Um, starting with Renner, this is fantastic. I think this is his best nomination. This is a wonderful performance by him. And um, I really wouldn't have minded seeing um, any of these guys win, but especially his win, I think, would have been a great win. However, Hawks is perfection. Hawks is menacing. Hawks is unnerving. It's uneasy. It's wonderful. You don't know whether to root or to hate him. Um, I mean, it's just brilliant. Yes, I think he's better than Jennifer Lawrence in this movie. Yes, I think he should have won. 
And um, justice for John Hawks. Please, someone write him something to bring him back into this race and get his Oscar that he should have won for this and had a nomination for the, the session. So, John Hawks, please. Well, let's see. That category I was way off on you on, but you nailed it on the head. Kudos. I'm always so interested to know how you always think these. All right. Um, moving on. Your lead actor nominations uh, review were Colin Firth in The King's Speech, Jesse Eisenberg in The Social Network, James Franco in 127 Hours, Jeff Bridges in True Grit, and Javier Bardem in Beautiful. My number five is going to be James Franco. Um, there is something missing from this all this time later, and it just – I think you hit it on the head. This just feels more like Danny Boyle than anything, so it's – Franco's got to go at five. Franco is also my number five for very similar reasons. Um, I think a lot of the things that make James Franco James Franco are on display here. And for the most part, it works for the film. Um, but it doesn't quite um, take me to another place as a viewer. Um, his performance, that is. So um, James Franco is number five. I am going to give Jeff Bridges number four. The only reason why he's not five is because Franco is there. But also, too, he's obviously better in this than John Wayne, but he's not really doing anything different that isn't Jeff Bridges that we've seen before. So Bridges has got to go at four. Well, Jeff Bridges is also my number four uh, for very similar reasons. Um, I think he's quite – I think he's good in the movie. And um, he's certainly doing better than John Wayne, in my opinion. But even removed from that, um, I like how he's really leaning into this character and really making this genre film into a ride. Um, but with who remains in this lineup, um, it's not the performance that I'm the most curious about. So um, Jeff Bridges at number four. Well, let's see if we can continue this streak of agreeing. Um, Jesse Eisenberg at three for me. Um, he's just... Like I mentioned earlier, he's just so outshined by everyone else that it it works, I guess. But I think that three is a fair spot to have him. So that's where I'm putting him. My number two and three are going back and forth. Um, but I think as of today, I'm going to put um, Colin Firth in my number three spot. Um, I think Firth is really good here. I do not um, scoff at this win in the way that I know a lot of other folks do, because um, I think he is turning out something really heartfelt. Um, and, I mean, like I... So I mentioned before watching this movie with my dad and brother. For some reason, this movie became a weird family favorite. Like, whenever it was on, I don't know if it was like Showtime or Stars, one of those movie channels, whenever it was on, it somehow became like a background movie. And I don't know why that is. So I have a weird nostalgic closeness to it. Um, and I do think he's just better than most people give him credit for. Um, but uh, I'm going to put him at number three today. All right. Well, we did not line up there. Um, my runner-up this year is Colin Firth, and nailed it, Brandon. Congrats. Uh, Javier Bardem is my winner. Firth is really good here. He is fantastic, and kudos to him on this win. Bardem was my winner on Oscar night. Bardem is still my winner all these years later because the movie is such 
a ride and it is you get so emotionally drawn in when a film does that for me if if i feel every ounce of pain and angst and worriedness I'll, I'll, if i feel all the feelings from the actor and the character the actor has me and bardem did that if i'm as exhausted watching bardem and going on this journey with him that is the testament to great acting the fact that i've only seen this movie twice and i have never had to revisit it i, I did for this but that i've never had to revisit it in the 11 years it's been out and can still remember it so vividly is the testament to great acting bardem should have won this it is bullshit even though i like first win i know that kind of contradicts itself but bardem should have won this so i'm sticking with it and i'm giving him the win uh, bardem is my runner up here um this is a tough movie um to get through like with every single passing scene i was just like groaning because he was being put through another really horrible thing and somehow he's able to carry it and deliver this really painfully gorgeous um performance and um it's it's hard to deny his power in those moments um but eisenberg in social network is the one that i find myself the most curious about um i feel like there's a lot more going on with this performance than initially meets the eye um this is the one that i find myself trying to like chip away at and peel back and really penetrate to like figure out what the fuck is going on in this guy's head um and so there's i don't know there's something about it that really draws me in and um it's i think it has come with time because back in its day like i said i liked this movie um but i didn't quite love it and i don't no, Eisenberg would not have been my winner on the night. It actually might have been Firth, to be honest, on the night. I don't know if I had seen Bardem at the time. But um, over the past 10, 11, whatever years, um, Eisenberg's performance and the film itself have grown on me more with each passing viewing. So um, as of today, Jesse Eisenberg is my winner in lead. Well... As a review, I gave it. I gave the winners uh, John Hawks and Javier Bardem. And I have uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Jeffrey Rush. Two very different performances. Yes. I have to ask you, I never really gave you clues about this lineup for me. Where, how the hell did you nail this one? Um, I don't know. Um, I know you like Winter's Bone. Um, so I thought Hawks might be a contender. Um, I honestly didn't think you would like the King's Speech as much as I learned today. Um, and for some reason, I thought you might find Ruffalo to be a lead. I wasn't sure because he's kind of, he kind of has like that big supporting presence. Um, Bardem, there was just something about it that spoke to me. It seemed like something you would go for because it's a highly emotional film. I'm full of emotions. I'm a Pisces. <sighs> wow, we did it. Do you feel good? Yeah, we uh, well, we have our rankings of the actual winners left, but as far as our own uh, lineups go, uh, 
we've nearly ended the season. We we have we have. You killed it with your predictions on me this season too. By the way, fuck you. <laughs> yes, I I've, I've zeroed in on your taste. I think. <laughs> and me, I'm still like. La di da, la di da. This, this. Nope. <laughs> I'm always so hopeful. Like maybe. Nope. Okay. Well, I'm gonna take a crack at your winners here. I think for supporting, you're gonna give the best of the decade to Mark Rylance. You were very high on that. It could be Mahershala Ali, but I think you're gonna give it to Rylance. I think for lead, you're gonna give the best to Casey Affleck. Okay. Um, for your supporting best of the decade, I'm thinking Ali for Moonlight, um, lead, I'm looking at it here, and I'm just gonna say Phoenix. Okay. Do you want to start us off since you have supporting? Sure. Sure. So, um, your... Actual real-life winners of the decade were Christian Bale um, for The Fighter, Christopher Plummer for Beginners, Christoph Waltz for Django Unchained, Jared Leto for Dallas Buyers Club, J.K. Simmons for Whiplash, Mark Rylance for Bridge of Spies, Mahershala Ali for Moonlight, Sam Rockwell for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Mahershala Ali again for Green Book, and Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time dot 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 in Hollywood. (laughs) I am going to give the number 10 spot to Brad Pitt um, for category reasons, and also I just don't find it to be that interesting of a performance. Well, I am also giving Bradley Pitt number 10 for category reasons. And then my number nine is uh, Christoph Waltz um, for category reasons. I think he's quite good in Django, but um, shouldn't be in this in that lineup. My number nine is Mahershala Ali for Green Book for category reasons. My number eight is Mahershala Ali for Green Book. Um, I'm on the fence with his category in that, um, but also I don't think that role is really giving him a whole lot to do. Um, so Ali is number eight specifically for Green Book. So Christoph Waltz for category reasons in number eight, but rounding out the three category frauds, I think he's the best of the bunch. Um, I think there's a lot going on for him. And this role gets a lot of shit, and I don't know why. And people want to say it's too familiar with Inglorious Bastards. I would like them to rewatch this and try again. Um, Number seven for me is Jared Leto for Dallas Buyers Club. For some reason, this performance just feels more like a a tool than a, than a character for some reason for me. So um, he's number seven. Number seven for me is Mark Rylance. I just don't get this one. It's they're subtle. And then there's this. And I, for me, it's just, I can't to this day see what the Academy saw, what you saw, what any, and I'm not dissing any of you guys. I'm just saying it just, I don't see it and it doesn't. Yeah. It's gotta go seven. Sam Rockwell is my number six for three billboards. Um, I don't quite give him the flack that he receives generally for this, but um, I think the movie lets him down and he doesn't quite live up to his full potential. So um, he's number six. Number six for me is the late, great Christopher Plummer. Um, He's fine, but it is not the greatest in this lineup. And I feel like six is fair for him. So that's where I'm putting him. 
Um, number five for me is going to be Christian Bale for the fighter. Um, like you just heard, I think he's quite good. Um, he's given it his all, but I'm more fascinated by the remaining four. Number five for me is J.K. Simmons. This is like Bale. It's a performance that is always just at a 10, and there's not really a whole lot for him to, like, de-escalate or give me something new. And I think it right in the middle is fair for him. I think this, this role is definitely one that people like to um, preach to the gods, and it's uh, it's good, but it's not anywhere near what people say it is. J.K. Simmons is my number four um, for very similar reasons. Well, my number four is going to be Christian Bale for everything you just heard, but at least with him, there's a little comedy to his role, so number four seems good. Christopher Plummer is number three for me for Beginners. Um, I love Beginners as a film. I think Christopher Plummer gives a very sensitive and beautiful performance. Um, and uh, this is a tough top three for me, um, but I guess today I'm only putting him at number three. My number three is Sam Rockwell. This performance is hilarious it's also terrifying it gives you a full gambit of emotion and people need to give sam rockwell a fucking break because it is a great win for a movie that i think is good um and you know what it's it's a great win here especially for the decade go sam rockwell number three um well you were nearly there for me because mark rylance is my number two um, I think Rylance is doing some really beautiful, beautiful, intricate, subtle work here um, that I can see why it's difficult to see all the little details he's doing, especially on a first time watch, because it was really on the second time going through it that it really clicked for me. Um, but Ali and Moonlight is my favorite winner in this category of the decade. Um, he's everything a supporting character needs to be. Um, he brings so much heart and soul um, to this role, and um, he's able to do it in just the first 30 minutes alone, um, which is tantamount to this category. So um, Ali's my winner for Moonlight. So uh, you hit it on the head. Um, Jared Leto is my runner-up at number two. Marshall Ali is at number one. Um, I really like Leto here. He's my winner on Oscar night. Um, that has changed, though. As you heard, I gave it to Jonah Hill. Um, but I think this is a great nomination. It is a great win um, for the decade. Great spot for number two. But there's no denying Mahershal Ali's greatness in Moonlight. It is one of the most well-deserved Oscars I've ever witnessed with my face. And, um, yeah, Mahershal Ali goes to number one for the decade for me. So... A reminder of your leading men. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I just hit my microphone. Sorry, guys. Um, number uh, uh, Colin Firth at the King's Speech, then Jean Dujardin with The Artist, Daniel Day-Lewis with Lincoln. Then we had, uh, fuck. <laughs> uh, Matthew McConaughey. Oh, Matthew McConaughey. I was like, wait, because I don't have him listed on mine with, by the year. Matthew McConaughey with Dallas Buyers Club. Eddie Redmayne for The Theory of Everything, Leo DiCaprio for The Revenant, then we had Casey Affleck for uh, Manchester by the Sea, Gary Oldman for uh, The Fat Man in a Suit movie, um, then we've got Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody and Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. My number 10 is Gary Oldman, what a bore, holy shit, goodbye. <laughs> My number 10 is going to be Rami Malek. Um, I just don't feel this one at all. So, number 10. 
All right, number nine is Casey Affleck. Um, cannot do this movie. Cannot do this performance. No. Number nine for me is Gary Oldman. Um, don't really care for this win. Don't really care for this movie. But um, at least I found myself slightly more entertained watching him than watching Malik. Number eight, Leo DiCaprio. What a he it's about time performance when this was and it's not really impressive when you have tom hardy doing so much more with such little less material to work with no uh leo dicaprio number eight my number eight is going to be matthew mcconaughey for dallas buyers club for some reason i just i just don't feel this one i feel like i felt it more the first time back in its day but re-watching it for our episode on that year i just wasn't just wasn't into it for some reason. So today he's number eight for me. Um, number seven, I'm giving it to Eddie Redmayne. Um, the Theory of Everything is not a great movie. When I revisit it, like I said, Felicity Jones is the uh, standout for me, plus the score. Um, when you had, in my opinion, Benedict Cumberbatch right there, who I think should have won, and even then Michael Keaton... It just doesn't work for me. And as a whole, it's not great in this lineup. So um, Eddie Redmayne's at seven. My number seven is Leonardo DiCaprio for The Revenant. Um, I'm a little more forgiving um, on this one on a performance level, kind of like Beautiful. He's really being put through a whole bunch of shit. Um, there's a whole lot going on in Beautiful because or in The Revenant because Inuritu is a bastard like that. Um, but... Even among this lineup, DiCaprio is only a number seven. Number six, Rami Malek. Um, I am more forgiving on this one than most people are. Um, while I definitely see its faults, um, without a doubt, I understand people's um, trepidation with this with this performance in this film. However, as this lineup goes, he's really not that bad with how underwhelming this winner lineup is. So... Remy's Remy, I'm gonna give him six. My number six is going to Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. Um, I think he's really giving it his all in this film. Um, but there's something about it that kind of leaves leaves a sour taste in my mouth and not in a way that I find constructive or interesting. It's just it's something about it. It just ends and I'm like, hmm, and I can't quite put my finger on it. Um, Maybe on rewatch it'll click for me, um, but right now Phoenix is my number six. Um, number five, I'm going to give Joaquin Phoenix. Um, this is great win. I'm not mad at it. Um, Performance-wise, with everyone else, I think it's perfect right in the middle. Um, it's not something that I can totally dislike with Gary Oldman. It's not something that I would give the winner to. So number five. Eddie Redmayne is my number five for the theory of everything, um, mostly because this is a very technical performance um, that I find myself very, um, it, it's sort of a marvel in that regard, the way he's able to very expertly and intricately depict um, the changes going on in this person's body um, over time, and it's so specific, um, so I admire it. Um, but in this lineup, it's only um, in the middle for me. Number four, I'm going to give to Daniel Day-Lewis. 
While I'm not a huge fan of this performance in this lineup, it is impressive. Um, it's completely overtaken that you're watching Daniel Day-Lewis. And um, yeah, there you go. Um, my number four is going to be um, Jean Dujardin uh, for the artist. Um, he has a great charisma and um, a perfect presence and face for this character. Um, he has a whole lot of charm to him, uh, but he's only my number four here. That's funny you said charisma because number four for me, oh, I'm sorry, number three for me is Jean Dujardin because he has a charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. And I would like him to sit on my face. So number three. Colin Firth is my number three. Um, pretty much for everything you just heard of not too long ago. Um, I like him. I think he doesn't quite deserve the the flack he gets for this win. And um, he's top three material for me. All right. Number two is going to be Colin Firth, which I do believe that Matthew McConaughey is the greatest lead actor winner in this lineup. Um, Colin Firth is fantastic. Just talked about him. McConaughey, though, is mind blowing in this lineup. He is complete transformation with a character that you can still hate and detest, but also still root for. And it is fantastic. A highly deserved win, in my opinion, and uh, the best lead actor win of this decade. My runner-up is Daniel Day-Lewis um, in Lincoln. Um, kind of like Redmayne, this is a very technically precise performance um, in the way that we are accustomed to Daniel Day-Lewis giving us. Um, he totally becomes this person. Um, Lincoln is one of those historical figures that is nearly impossible to live up to the legendary status that they have. Um, in the history of America, but I feel like Daniel Day-Lewis lived up to it and delivered a really strong performance. Um, but Casey Affleck is my favorite in this lineup. Um, this performance is gorgeous in the most disturbing of ways sometimes. I feel like there's a huge gravity to this character, and I find myself sort of in its orbit. Um you know, slight disclaimer, he's probably not the best human being, but looking at the performance, um, it's it's hard for me to say that it's not the one that I'm the most drawn to. So, um, yeah, you were right on that one. Uh, Casey Affleck is my favorite lead actor um, performance of the decade. Woohoo, I got something. One point, two claps. There you did go. it. Yay. All right. So, Glenn Close on Academy Queens. Uh, do you, is everyone ready for this one? Do you think sure. so? Sure. Okay. So, a couple of months ago, I get, and we, I should say we get, but it was t mainly towards me here. We get on the Academy Queens a, an at from Kevin Jacobson. Um, it was when <laughs> Glenn Close had shaded Gwyneth Paltrow in that interview for when she was doing uh, promo for Hillbilly Elegy. And it was like, I remember when Fernanda Montenegro didn't win and Gwyneth Paltrow won. And I was like, what? What are they thinking? And we got an app that said, Glenn Close, shady, Glenn Close on AQ challenge. And I said, 
challenge accepted. Cool. So I reach out to Glenn Close's people. And in every time we reach out to someone, whether it was Meg Tilly or Tyler Davidson or whoever we've had on the show, you know, I have a saved spiel and I send it. And it's, and you know, one thing when it comes to guests, whether it is a famous guest or uh, a guest for a show, like, uh, like Kevin Jacobson, for example, no shade. And I was like, you know, we always work with their schedule, but we don't put that in the opening paragraph of the email or whatever it is that we're sending out. So pretty much it's like, uh, we'd like to see if Glenn would like to come on. We could talk about our nominations, talk about upcoming Hillbilly Elegy, all this stuff. And it's like, no, I remember it was over Thanksgiving break too. And uh, so, you know, on certain holiday breaks, for those of you who don't know, publicists and managers, whatnot, they also have a break, so they're not like available. So I send out this thing, let us know, we would love to have her on. There's not a date, nothing. I get an instant response from one of those automated email responses from her publicist that says, I'll be out of town, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Uh, we'll get back to you. Cool. Six minutes later, exactly six minutes later, we get an email from her publicist that says, she's not available. Thanks for thinking of her. Goodbye. <laughs> she's busy. <laughs> She's got I'm shit like, to do. I'm like, bitch. I'm like, we didn't even put a time, a date, nothing. I was like, they know. <laughs> they know about me and know about what I have said on Academy Queens. Which is funny to me because I, despite everything, I've always said that I don't hate her, but I am critical of her, and I've explained it why. Go listen to those episodes if you still don't believe me. So, go to the next day. I get a call from my manager. My manager is my my, my talent manager. I, I'm, you know, his office is in LA. And <laughs> I, like, get this thing where it's like, can you please be nice to her and I said I am nice to her so something happened like whatever so nothing bad happened but like something had like his publicist or her publicist had to have called him or something something happened they knew about me and I'm like I am nice I'm not not nice I'm critical <laughs> he goes I get you're being funny other people may not hear it that way so then I'm like okay so then that same day I, I look at his personal Facebook and he's like, Glenn, like he taught, he posted something about Glenn Close and tagged her personal Facebook profile. Now, mind, mind you, this isn't like public to people. It's like, you know, he's my manager, so we're Facebook, it's private, yada, yada, yada. So it's like, Glenn Close, what a legend, works <laughs> with, you know, all these uh, uh, charities and advocate and totally doing damage control. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. What did I do? So, yes. So, Kevin Jacobson's challenge for Glenn Close and AQ is not going to happen because she is not a fan of me. Sorry about it. There it is. All right. You're notorious. I am famous in Glenn Close's eyes. Gotta love it. 
I was like, what? How do you send an email without a time or date? I'm busy. Bitch, what? <sighs> there you go. There, There's the story. So, Brandon, we've reached the end of our journey. How do you feel? Um, Feels pretty good right now. Yeah. Like we said earlier, we're not going away, away. We'll still be on Patreon. Two episodes a month, $6. Come join us. Um, we've got mm. some great bonus episodes that were never released to the general public that you can catch up on. We've got all the bonus episodes, a year's worth of bonus episodes, 24 episodes plus. Um, come check it out. It's a lot of fun. We'll still be around, but we will be back for the class of 2020 um, sometime in the spring. So, Right. We'll see you around. Indeed. Well, for now, so long. Alvitasen, our friends. On the count of three, bid adieu. Ready? One, two, three. Adieu. adieu.